listeners, before we get to this episode of Problem Solvers, here is a word from our sponsor. Entrepreneurs are problem solvers by nature. But when you're solving complex business issues, the last thing you and your team need are technology hassles. That's why with the Galaxy Book lineup, Samsung set out to make a PC that helps you reclaim the workday, eliminating distractions and empowering you and your team to focus on the big picture. Invest in your workplace. Invest in your future. Upgrade to Galaxy Book, the PC that helps modern businesses go further. Explore the whole range at samsung.com slash galaxy book for work. And now on with the show. From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. Are you familiar with the dramatic principle of Chekhov's gun? It's a rule in storytelling. Basically, it says that the details in a story must contribute to the overall narrative of the story. Although very literally, it often also means that if you see a gun introduced in a television show or a movie or whatever, that gun is going off. Or if it's not going off, it's at least playing a rather significant role in the ending of the show. So why am I telling you this? Well, for two reasons. One, because today's conversation is very much about storytelling and the power of it. But also, we had, at the very beginning of our conversation about storytelling, a bit of a Chekhov's gun moment. Though it wasn't a gun, it was children. The kids are on the other side of this wall, and we're going to see, do they burst in in the middle of our conversation? Do, can we just hear them? Jason, I have to give my own caveat. We are at an Airbnb in middle of nowhere. And so this place has a pool. My kids are next door. They could run through naked or in bathing suits. Sure, okay. So that's, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see who can keep the kids at bay longer. Amazing. That is me and Wondery CEO Jen Sargent giving the normal these days caveats about a conversation we're about to have. I happened to be traveling and I was in Chicago at the time. Jen, as you heard, was in an Airbnb. So kids were around. Whose kids will run in in the middle of the conversation? Whose kids will it be? Chekhov's children. Anyway, you'll have to listen to find out why was I talking to Jen Sargent? Well, a number of reasons. One, we included Jen Sargent in our 100 Women of Impact issue, which comes out in October. But also, I was really excited to talk to Jen because she is the CEO of one of the most celebrated and accomplished podcast networks, which was recently acquired by Amazon. And if you are a podcast listener, I kind of imagine that you are. Maybe you have heard some of their major shows like Dirty John, Dr. Death, Business Wars, Tides of History. That is a personal favorite of mine. American Scandal. It goes on and on and on. Anyway, Wondery, you have surely heard their work. As a podcaster myself, I was so curious to hear from someone who is running a show like that what she thinks makes for a great podcast and how do you build and connect with an audience and how do you build a business around that? Particularly, I should add, when you are now part of one of the largest companies in the world in Amazon, which is a very data-driven company. How do you take creative risks in a data-driven company? It was a fascinating conversation, and I really enjoyed talking to Jen, and I think that you will really enjoy listening to it too. I'm going to give you a little teaser here. What does Jen think 
makes for a great podcast? I would say conviction about the subject matter. Mm. What I find is that podcasts are a lot of work. There are a lot of work for the host and anyone around them helping to produce it. And hosts really need to be into it. And if they're not, it comes through. It's really obvious in the audio. The bar has been set. I hope that you, dear listener, feel the conviction that I have for the subject matter. Also, I should note that this episode is part of our ongoing series that we're calling The Future of Entrepreneurship, because what Jen and I talk about is so much about understanding how you can build a company that sustains into the future. My conversation with Jen Sargent of Wondery, coming up after the break. This is a message for lawyers, consultants, accountants, photographers, designers, and other professionals who sell their time, which I know is a lot of you. Square is here to make your work-life balance better. How are they going to do that? Because their suite of tools works together to easily keep you organized. You can send out custom estimates to bring in more clients, accept any type of payment that your customer wants to use wherever they want to pay. Take payments in person, over the phone, through your computer, through email or text, via invoices or on your website. Get real-time reports that show you what's working best. And their built-in client management software even lets you have all your notes and client details in one place, including a card on file for repeat customers. Square's tools are built to work together so that you can spend less time on paperwork and more time on actual work. Learn more at square.com. All right, we're back. So as you know, I'm talking to Wondery CEO, Jen Sargent, about the business of creativity. And Jen will give more of her own career backstory in just a few minutes. But here's some basic context for you to know going into the conversation. Jen was the COO of Wondery. And then things changed this past February when Amazon officially acquired Wondery for a sum that was reported to be around $300 million. That obviously transformed Wondery from an independent studio into a key asset in Amazon Music's battle against Spotify. And it also meant that Jen became CEO of the company. So with that in mind, let's get back into the beginning of this conversation. I started by asking Jen what she thinks makes for a great podcast. You heard a little bit of her answer before. Now here's the rest of it. One of the beautiful things about podcasts is that listeners feel a connection to the host. And if the host isn't projecting that that conviction and passion, listeners just see right through that. So I, I'd say that's really important. And the other thing I'd emphasize is just putting yourself in the listener's shoes. Everybody's really busy and you're asking for people's time. Usually not their money, but their time. And sometimes, I mean, I think all the time that's their most valuable asset. So What's the why behind your podcast and why should someone take 20, 30 minutes to listen? And you better have a strong answer for that. And, and if you do, I think you're probably set up for success with podcasting. I, that's really great advice. Let me dig a little deeper on it. I wonder how you guys think about developing shows. And obviously, the kinds of shows that you're developing are going to be different from what the average entrepreneur is going to be producing on their own. But the starting point has to be the same, which is to say, we are going to create something in an exceptionally crowded space. We're going to add one more where there's already a million. And you can have great conviction as a host, and you can understand your audience. But to produce something that doesn't exist or to do it in a way in which it's not already being done so that it feels unique is a real challenge. How do you guys think about how to create something that feels unique enough that people are going to devote that most valuable resource to it, which is time? 
Yeah. I think the thing we do, which is relatable to anybody starting a podcast is we start with the listener and we say, who's going to listen to this? Who are we programming for? And once we get that piece identified, we're all about storytelling and immersive storytelling and putting listeners in the middle of a story. So we look for a great story. We just look for a great story. Chekhov's children. They arrived. And now here comes my wife to try to help me out. It happened. It happened. The children have burst in. Come on. I I love it. Well, what did we make it? We made it, I think, four minutes before that happened. Anyway, so, right. So, you look, thanks. Yeah, I could re-say that that part if that's helpful. No, you know know what? I'm going to keep it. I'll tell you why I'm going to keep it. And then we're just going to roll with this. And we're going to keep this part, too. Because I have found, I I did this. And look, this, I don't know that there's a corollary when you're doing the highly produced kind of work that you guys are doing. But what I have discovered about my own shows is that letting the interruptions of daily life into them has not been an interruption. It's been an asset because I find that audiences relate to it and it makes them feel closer to the host. And there's this odd thing that I've found about podcasting. And, and I make, I mean, for what it's worth, I make two shows. I make this show, which is more casual. And then I make another one that's more high concept and highly produced. It takes me a month to make each episode. But even there, I started to let the life and children slip in because I found that podcasting is effective when you create this balance between this high quality product and you feeling like you connect to the person who's making it. Does that translate in the more highly produced world? Oh, 100%. In fact, I mean, just looking back at this crazy year and a half that we've all been in, I think what has helped podcasts not only survive, but really take off is exactly that connection because we've all been stuck at home, socially distanced, cut off from all the things we love in life. And what we realized, what I realized is that people feel this connection with the hosts of the podcast they listen to. And it doesn't matter if it's produced or more conversational. If, if that connection exists, it really pulls the listener in and, and kind of keeps them listening. So I think that's great. I think that's yeah. great. And, and sometimes I think it's easier to, to pull it off in a conversational podcast than it is in our, our highly scripted, highly produced, because you can lose that sometimes, right? Right. Right. Yeah, totally. All right. Let's back up a little bit. I'm curious about your background. You have a very varied career. Maybe maybe if you want to just inform folks about where you were before Wondery and then also what you feel like you brought from learning through other media and other industries into the podcasting space. Let's see. I've always been really fascinated by the intersection of media and technology. And I think that's the thread that's consistent in my career. But Mm. Like a lot of people, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I've, I've had a lot of zigs and zags. And I think that's the way to do it, you know, because no one is born knowing exactly what they're going to do when they're going to do it. And you have to adapt to what life gives you sometimes. And so that's what I did. I, I started out in, in finance at JP Morgan doing investment banking in the tech media and telecom group, did that for a few years, and then realized I was much more passionate about the companies we were advising. And I wanted to be an operator, found my way into the dot-com bubble and everything exciting that was going on in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and and joined a company called DoubleClick, which was at really the forefront of digital advertising and bringing advertising software and opportunities to publishers, 
trying to, to, to monetize content on the web and advertisers trying to reach all these new eyeballs on the web. So that was a really cool experience. Then I got a kind of a, a bug to live abroad. And I tried to do that with DoubleClick, ended up moving to Germany and working and living there for a few years, making a bad attempt at learning German, but got it done and I had a wonderful life experience. And it was that time in Germany that I realized I really wanted to be an entrepreneur, that I wanted to build, I love to build. If I could take my skill sets and, and, and create new things, that was going to be really rewarding. But I realized that Germany was a tough place to start a company for a lot of reasons, or at least at that time, labor laws and, and those types of things. And I had not yet mastered the German language. Uh, so came back to the US, got my MBA, and was really planning to come up with my big idea at business school and launch a company. But that timing didn't work out. I, I didn't have my big idea when I graduated. So I thought, well, let me do something I'm passionate about and the ideas will come. So I joined a media company, Read Business Information. At the time, it was the parent company of Variety. And they had about 60 business-to-business brands, but I was their digital person helping them get everything into web and mobile. And to me, that was really exciting. And while I was there, I did have an idea. Uh, My timing wasn't great because I got that idea around 2008 and left my good job at Variety in fall of 2008, right during the Great Recession. Right. Not uh, a great time to have (laughs) have your big idea. Not a great time. And in hindsight, a great time. And uh, I'll come back to that in a second, but I launched my own uh, company and entertainment news and events brand called HitFix. And I raised funding. I, in the fall of 2008, while everything was collapsing, I, I got the company launched in early 2009, grew it, and then eventually got acquired in, in 2016 by a larger digital media company called Uprox. And during that, I learned a lot about growing a media company. We had started in written content and evolved into video. We dabbled in podcasting. We really spanned the gamut across movies, music, and TV. I learned a lot about consumer behavior and how to launch a brand, how to grow a brand, how hard that is. And so I I think a lot of my lessons that are applicable to podcasting happened during that time. Also, what happened during that time is just growing a business during a recession and dealing with externalities that you can't control and how you navigate that. And I think that especially helped me these last 18 months. But but to continue on that path, so Uprox acquired, I stayed at Uprox for a few years, became president, helped them get acquired by Warner Music Group. And at that point, I was ready for a change. I had been through several acquisitions and I wanted to, again, go back to something I was really passionate about, technology and media. I was personally a podcast listener. I normally live in Los Angeles and I'm frequently in traffic. Yeah. Yes. Like many people in Southern California, you have to pass the time somehow. And, and for me, that was podcasts and really got into it. So when an opportunity came up to join Wondery, at the time, it was a 20-person company. I mean, maybe we had 5 million of revenue. So, so not very big, not yet proven, but uh, a great vision and some early successes. And, and so I thought, this is something I can really sink my teeth into. And I'm going to love listening to the product. I'm going to love working on this. And that led me to Wondery. And I've been at Wondery now for about three and a half years, almost three and a half years. And in February of this year, we got acquired by Amazon. So it's been just a really exciting ride. And I imagine, so there's a lot that I could pull from there, but let's go with you learned how to grow a company in the recession. And then that really helped inform some of the decisions that must have been made over the last 18 months. And 
I remember the very beginning of the pandemic, the big conversation in the podcast world was, oh no, people aren't commuting anymore. That's when podcast listening is going to happen. Is podcast listening just going to fall off a cliff? And if memory serves me right, what happened was that there was a major interruption at the very beginning, but then it stabilized as people just started listening in other ways. But how did you start to think about what the company needed to be doing then if there was a different way to reach consumers? Did it shift to the way that you thought about the content that you produced or the way that you marketed it? What 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 changed during that time? Gosh, in some ways, everything changed. And in other ways, I had to go back to business fundamentals. So you're right. Th- there were just dramatic shifts in listener behavior. I think routine is the friend of podcasts. It mm-hmm. might not be commuting, but having it at the same time during the same activity every day is really great for podcasts. So any disruption to that routine can be really tricky. And that's exactly what happened uh, the first few months of the pandemic. But what we found after that was that people kind of settled into a routine of listening and it was different than commuting. It was while they were hanging out around the house, doing chores, walking the dog, exercising, et cetera. But what else happened during that time? I mean, advertising, our main revenue stream, completely fell off a cliff for right. a few months. That was really scary. For Wondery, we were about three months away from launching an app and our Wondery Plus subscription service. That was weird because we were wondering, gosh, all these people just lost their job or have their life turned upside down. Is this the time to ask them to pay for podcasts? <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? which is to say, actually, can I translate that? Which is to say, yeah. ask them to pay for something that they're already getting for free, which must yeah. be an even stranger ask. Right. Right. So that gave us a moment, me a moment, a pause. And then the the, the last big thing that happened was we were just starting to get traction with our podcast to TV production. So we had a, a bunch of shows optioned and we were starting to get them into production. Dr. Death had just started shooting. Like we were mm-hmm. in, like a weekend and all of a sudden the production had to be shut down and we're like, oh no, you know, <laughs> this show is going to come out in whatever fall of 2020 and that wasn't going to happen. So everything shifted. The other thing is how we just make our podcast. So we had people coming into our recording studio, our physical recording studio in our offices and that couldn't happen either. So we just, like like many companies, had to pivot really quickly and set up our, our hosts with home recording studios, get everybody uh, home recording equipment. We decided to continue on with our app development and subscription. We It was a little bit of a waiting game on the advertising side, but we had to adapt. And I think what I learned the first time around, and well, I won't even say that's the first time around because I've I'm old enough to have lived through a, you know, a bunch of different things. But what I learned during the Great Recession is there's kind of a timidness and a hunker down mentality that comes with certain types of externalities like 9-11 and the dot-com bubble bursting, certainly the Great Recession and now COVID-19. And, and I think there's just a certain level of grit that entrepreneurs and leaders have to exercise to get through these times. And they need to remember their business fundamentals, but also have this willingness to adapt to the situation. And if you can kind of bring those two things together, you you can actually grow and thrive during challenging times. We're going to take a short break here. And when we come back more with Jen Sargent talking about growth during challenging times and what it's been like adjusting to now being part of Amazon. In 2021, we know living to work isn't all it's cracked up to be, especially in coastal cities where balance is hard to come by. But the good news is things are looking a little brighter in Ohio. 
In fact, lower taxes, top-rated affordability, and a thriving economy are just a few of the reasons you and your employees will love doing business there. And Ohio has the numbers to prove it. In 2020, the state was ranked the number one most affordable state, number three for housing affordability, and the 21st largest economy worldwide. So whether you're starting a new business or expanding an established one, Jobs Ohio is ready to support your big ideas and help you make the most of Ohio's strong economy and incredible quality of life so that you can focus on what's most important, growing your business. Learn more about how Jobs Ohio can help your business succeed at ohioisforleaders.com. All right, we're back. So let me pick up where we left off. Jen was talking about how she had adapted Wondery to the difficult times of the pandemic and how lessons she learned from her work during the Great Recession really helped inform that. Yeah, it's something I feel like I've seen a lot from entrepreneurs who describe going through this time is that what carried them through was a belief in the future. I think about that you continue to develop Wondery Plus, even though the idea of asking people to pay for anything at the beginning of the pandemic, not knowing how it was going to impact people, felt insane. And then again, like I said, you're you're trying to shift people over to pay for something that they're already getting for free. So that's, that's, that's like a complicated sell. But you must have been thinking, and I, I zero in on this as an example of the broader philosophy, which I'd love for you to just articulate a little bit more. You must have been thinking, well, look, this is not the end of the... Something is going to change here. We have to plan on a future, not retract to a scary present. And it feels to me like those who had a strong enough vision and mission that they were able to anticipate and build for a future, even though that future seemed harder to see, were the ones that ultimately won out because they were the ones that were able to carry on and understand not just what their consumer might need right now in a moment of disruption, but also we're going to want later. What do you think about that? I think that's spot on. I mean, this idea of looking to the future and not letting what's immediately happening around you completely cloud that vision is important for us. We we already had a hunch. I already had a hunch that subscription was going to be revenue, a revenue model that worked in podcasting. There were already signs of that. There were already signs of consumers just wanting that choice of I don't want ads or I want to get the content I love early or, uh, you know, whatever that value proposition is. And from a creator standpoint, having another way to monetize that's not advertising, that doesn't involve having a big sales force, that kind of puts the power in the hands of the creator was was something that we saw was going to happen and need, going to need to happen. And when the, the base fell out of advertising at the beginning of the pandemic, it made that almost more important for that to somehow get created. So whether it was going to take off right away for us was not certain, but the idea that this would be an eventuality that we would evolve to a paid model as part of the revenue mix, that still felt like the right thing. And in hindsight, it definitely was, but yeah. at the time it was very scary. I'm curious about the value proposition that you guys developed. I've said now twice, like Wondery Plus is basically asking people to pay for something that they can get for free. But of course, that's not entirely true because there is so much that you are offering in addition to it. So can you talk to me about, and I know, so so it's, it's ad-free, you're getting shows in advance of when they're released elsewhere. Talk to me about how you guys thought through the value proposition. You're, you're sitting, you're thinking, let's create a subscription product. What is a consumer going to be willing to pay for? What's enough value that they're going to be willing to pay for this? So 
again, we started with the listener and what they had told us was uh, what they loved about our podcast and what was frustrating. So the things they loved were the content itself, binging some of this content and being able to listen to a few episodes at a time. What they didn't love was the experience of the existing podcast players where they finish an episode and it would take them backwards instead of forwards or that certain features that they wanted and expected just just weren't there in terms of consuming the content. But then we were really trying to cater to our most passionate fans. So the ones who were more heavy listeners, super fans of Wondery, who appreciated ad-free early access, and in some cases, exclusive content. But this idea that, you know, some shows they want to binge, uh, something like Dr. Death, they might want to just listen to all six over a weekend and having that available in a service uh, that was easy to navigate was something they told us they wanted. So that's who we were initially programming for. And then from there, we've gone broader and broader as we've heard from more listeners about what they want and what we can bring them that's special and different. Let's talk about Amazon. So Amazon acquisition, what does that do for Wondery? I've seen you say that you're going to double staff in a year. I imagine that you now have a lot more resources available for growth and you now have the power of Amazon behind you. But what does that mean for a company like Wondery? I think it means that we can supercharge a lot of the things we were trying to do on our own. I mean, what really drew me to Amazon when we were considering this is the fact that they're so customer centric and every conversation in Amazon starts with the customer. And that's how we've tried to approach our podcasts. So that kind of positioning really and an approach really spoke to me. But I mean, some of the things we've been trying to do that Amazon enhances one global expansion. So, you know, we started this with Dr. Death back in 2019. We launched it in seven local languages globally, and uh, we were able to hit number one in those markets. But that kind of led us to translating and adapting more and more of our content. At this point, we've translated hundreds of episodes of our, our, our various shows from business wars to innovations to many of our mini series and being able to leverage Amazon's global footprint to get further in those markets faster is huge and something that a standalone startup company is challenged with. The second thing I mentioned was this idea of IP development. I mentioned TV, but we're not stopping there. So We see a real opportunity to take our podcast to other platforms, whether that's books. We just launched uh, our first book this year for Business Wars, Art of Business Wars with HarperCollins, music, games, merchandise, live events. These are all things that Amazon has in their wheelhouse uh, that we can leverage and leverage a lot easier than doing a whole bunch of partnerships. So in terms of that part of our roadmap, it it kind of turns it on right away. We are also trying to get to more listeners. I mean, we're known for our immersive storytelling. We started out in a few verticals like business and tech and entertainment and true crime, but we're going broader. You know, we're now in comedy and sports and news and interview-based shows. And we want to reach more and more consumers. And what we want to we want to find them where they are and, and create those on-ramps. Well, Amazon's one of the largest companies in the world. They reach many of the consumers we want to reach. And so being able to leverage their footprint across devices, across services like Amazon Music and Audible, where they're already listening, that's really exciting for Wondery too. That is something I had 
been curious about in terms of the expansion of the kinds of content that you do? Because uh, when I think of Wondery as a, just coming from a consumer perspective, the first time I think I heard the name Wondery enough to start thinking, oh, there is a company that is producing, it was true crime. And so I associated Wondery with true crime for a long time. And then I started to encounter these other shows, like as I told you, Tides of History, which I really love, which is certainly not true crime. So I'm curious, was this a roadmap to start in a space that has a really proven audience? True crime is is what a lot of people, is how a lot of people get introduced to podcasts and then start expanding outward genre-wise from there? Or am I just, is that just my perception of it as a guy who listens to podcasts? Yeah. I don't know if it was that prescriptive. We started out just looking for great stories mm-hmm. and I was shocked to find that so many crazy good stories are in the true crime genre. <laughs> and I'll say even when when something seems like true crime, we rarely do something that's straight true crime. There's usually something else behind it. There's a system failure. There's very interesting characters. It's a psychological thriller. Like there's something else besides just a crime for us to, to, to really turn it into uh, one of our shows. But then from there, yeah, we started to just pay attention to who's listening and what else do they listen to and how can we take our storytelling to other other genres and other people. So it's been very organic that way. I, I think as we've happened upon new audiences and they tell us what they like and we dissect what was working, then that leads us to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Jen, let's end on this. I was reading this story in Variety, I think about the Amazon acquisition. And in there, you just use this wonderful phrase, which was a culture of risk-taking that you said you have at Wondering and want to continue to foster. And I'd love to hear you speak on that one, how to develop a culture of risk-taking, but then also I imagine how to protect a culture of risk-taking because it's easy to be the risk-takers when you're the scrappy company. It may be harder to be the culture of risk-takers when you're part of Amazon or any gigantic entity. So can you take me through that, I guess, starting with what does a culture of risk-taking mean to you and, and how did you foster it there? And then let's talk about protecting it. Yeah. So I think culture of risk-taking starts with a willingness to make mistakes and a culture that allows for mistakes. And what I mean by that is if you have a culture where everyone needs to be right and mistakes are frowned upon, then people end up not wanting to stretch. They're not going to share their idea if they're not 100% sure it's right. And they're not going to admit mistakes and you're not going to be able to improve your product. And so I've been in environments where mistakes were not tolerated and it really hampered that ability to do big things. So for me, it's, I mean, it starts with me as the leader being vulnerable admitting my own mistakes, learning from them. For entrepreneurs, it's usually this like fail fast and then get on to the next thing. And I try to embody that mentality of like, okay, you made a mistake. Let's figure it out. Let's move on. So that that's kind of how it got established at Wondery. And I, I think it's also setting stretch goals and setting a vision where people are like, how on earth are we ever going to do that? <laughs> and then they take risks and they try and, and, and they try to figure it out. And then we set another stretch goal. So that's kind of what we did prior to Amazon. Now, maintaining that at a company Amazon size, it's a mix. You know, I I think one of the hardest things is is that Amazon, like many large companies, is Mm data-driven. And sometimes for brand new things, especially content, it's hard to quantify the risk. It's hard to quantify in hard data how a show is going to do, how the Shrink Next Door podcast is going to do. How is it going to do as a TV show? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. 
And as a, and as somebody who has spent his entire career in content, that kind of data mentality, while it can be very helpful, is also very scary because it can totally limit you. And you could start saying, well, I mean, let's just do the reverse of what we just said. You, you might say, oh, you know what? The true crime shows are doing really well. Let's just zero in on that, put all the resources into true crime because the data says it. And then you'll miss all the other opportunities in, in different genres because you're not exploring them because the data has told you to do one thing. So so that must be on your mind. It is. I think one of my most favorite sayings that I've learned at Amazon when there's a lack of data is, well, what do we need to believe to be true in order for this to work? Oh. And I love that because then it's like, oh, okay, I don't have all the data. I don't have all the answers, but here's what I believe is going to be true for this to work. And Can you and give you me start... an example of, it doesn't have to be a real example, but can you play that out in a scenario so people can understand how to apply that thinking? Yeah. We want to spend a million dollars on this new podcast idea to reach a new audience that we've never reached before. Is that worth it? Well, we don't have any data because we haven't launched anything in the space before. We haven't reached this audience, but we believe that in success, we're going to reach 2 million people and it's going to generate X million advertising. And this is actually going to put us on the map to attract more talent that will attract more of these types of people and let us launch more podcasts in this vertical. And in five years time, we're going to have made $20 million off of this $1 million investment. And that's what I believe to be true. And so uh, you just yeah. you build it up that way. And we kind of had those conversations every day about content because mm. it's not as data-driven until we get into a genre, until we get into a new category. And then we do quantify it when we can. And then I guess the challenge is to just always hold that as a final thought here is to just always hold that balance, I imagine, is to at one, lean into what the data is telling you, follow the hits, understand the audience and treat the data that you're getting from the audience seriously, but at the same time, have that hypothesis machine always running where you're seeing what data can't yet show you and taking that maybe, if not just as seriously as the data that you actually have from actual customers, then seriously enough that you're willing to put money behind figuring out if you're right. That's exactly right. And we we try to shoot bullets before cannons to go to Jim Collins. We test and we try and we take a smaller risk before we take the big risk when we can and Perfect. hope for the best. Well, Jen, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. It's really nice to meet you. And uh, thanks for the time today. And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.